happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel, serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we've, we've really enjoyed the topics that we've been covering lately, but there's one thing that's been missing, and we've really been missing it, and that is a proper exhumation. And that's why I really perked up when listener Will suggested a podcast on Tamerlane, which offers us not only an exhumation and a curse, but as he describes it, a person who is a patron of the arts, a military genius, and a bloodthirsty conqueror, all wrapped up in one. Sounds right up our alley. It does. And it was funny because when Will suggested this, he mentioned that he found it because he had just moved to a new city and he didn't know anybody. So he was researching bloody conquests. (laughs) That sounds a little ominous, Will. (laughs) It does. I can't say, Will, that that's going to make you a lot of friends, but it definitely gets us on your side. But back to Tamerlane. He's also known as Timur, and he wasn't your average ruthless warrior. He conquered an empire that stretched from the Aegean to the Ganges, and he's been called the last great nomad predator, one of history's most notorious psychopaths, and the scourge of God. He's even claimed descent from Genghis Khan. Which is going to make sense when we look at his life a little later. So with that kind of street cred, it's clear that there are a lot of stories that we could tell about this guy. But to keep things simple, we're going to focus on his last major battle, which was the Battle of Ankara, in which he went up against another great force, the Ottoman Empire. And you really get to see the tactics that made him who he was when when you look at this battle closely. And the battle itself is is pretty famous. It makes an in our old friend Christopher Marlowe's play, Tamberlen the Great. And even though in that case, you know, it's been dramatized, the events surrounding our protagonist in this play are fictionalized. So we're going to start with 
some something with some real historical truth to it. The early days of Timur's life. Yes, he was born with the name Timur, which means iron in Turkic, on April 8, 1336, in Kesh, which is south of Samarkand, in what is now Uzbekistan. And his father was a minor chief of the Barlas tribe and settled in that area at the heart of the crumbling Mongol Empire, which was breaking apart into warring factions ruled by descendants of Genghis Khan. And these were the three factions, the Chagatai Khanate, the Ilkhanid dynasty, and the so-called Golden Horde. So the Barlas were part of the Chagatai Khanate, which had its own trouble with tensions between nomadic tribes and those who wanted a settled life. So there was a lot of tribal infighting. Yeah, as well as these grander Mogul infighting tensions. So uh, a lot going on. But Timur came up in this environment and started out as kind of a bandit, really, probably participating in these intertribal disputes, but also doing just some plain old criminal stuff. It was during a raid while he was still a young man, some say he was stealing sheep, that he was injured in his right arm and leg, and his right arm was just left completely useless. And because of the injuries in his right leg, he walked with a limp. So this is what actually led to that Western name, Tamerlan. It was originally Timur e Lenk, or Timur the Lame, which was obviously not a flattering title. It was something used by his enemies to to mock him. Yeah, but even after those injuries, it's interesting, he was still a force to be reckoned with. He was a big, strong guy with a large head and a long beard of a reddish hue, or that's what's said of him anyway. And he became a skilled horseman and a superior soldier, and he quickly built up a following. And then in 1361, Timur took charge of the area around Samarkand when he swore allegiance to Tukluk, who who had taken over the Chagatai Khanate. And when Tukluk died not long after, Timur actually formed an alliance with another tribal chief named Hussein, and they split up the areas and kind of put down the other warring tribes and uh, took over ruling this area. Yeah, but eventually Timur even turned on Hussein and defeated him, so working his way up all the while. And by 1370, he was just in his early 30s, he was at that point the ruler of the Chagatai Khanate, which had its capital at Samarkand. So he had gone from just being the son of one of these local tribes to ruling the whole Khanate. Yeah, and this is the point that also he starts claiming to be a descendant of Genghis Khan, though most sources indicate that this is probably unlikely. And he's announcing his goal of reestablishing the Mongol Empire. So he's establishing the strategy of war abroad and peace or a more settled life at home, which satisfies kind of everyone. It satisfies those who want new conquests as well as those who wanted the more stable, settled life. He reestablishes and monopolizes the Silk Road and spends the 1380s and 90s, invading and conquering many areas, including Persia, Iraq, Armenia, Georgia, Anatolia, Syria, all of Central Asia, northern India, and the approaches to China, and much of southern Russia, too. Probably his longest struggle, though, was that against the Golden Horde, one of those original warring factions that we talked about, and he finally defeated them in 1391. So we've got to talk about how he did all of this. I mean, that's a pretty impressive list you just rattled off there, Dublina. 
First of all, he was really scary. I mean, that was his prime way of conquering all of these territories. He served up his invasions with a heaping helping of violence, you could say. He would basically come in, destroy entire cities, massacre their entire populations, and then build towers or pyramids out of their severed heads. Seriously. Yeah, that was kind of his trademark. It was. In Isfahan in Central Asia, for example, he demanded that each of his soldiers take a severed head. It amounted to 70,000 total that were built into towers. And in another city, 2,000 people were cemented together to make a living tower. So, I mean, you hear numbers like this all the time, 70,000, 90,000, 20,000. These are the numbers that were involved in these massacres. And uh, it's sort of amazing. Well, and it makes you reconsider what he was actually out there doing, too. Richard Cavendish in History Today called these, quote, more in the nature of large-scale looting expeditions than empire building. And it it does seem that way. And it's really no wonder that people were so afraid of him because he used fear as a compelling weapon as much as any of his other tactics, which also included things like lightning advances and feigned retreats and ambushes. So he was smart in a military sense, but it was was this fear tactic that really accomplished things in the end. He would even send secret agents ahead of troops to spread rumors about atrocities. So cities would get scared and sort of lay down their arms, not that that would really help them very much in the end. No, it didn't in a lot of cases. But Timur was also somewhat contradictory in that he wasn't just a killing machine. He was also a fine chess player. He actually created the game of Tamerlane Chess, and he enjoyed a good theological discussion now and again. He engaged scholars in debate. He also did a lot to beautify his capital, Samarkand. He encouraged art there, literature, science, and public works. And it seemed like the one group of people that he consistently spared when he did loot these towns were the the city's artisans, their fine craftsmen. He would bring them back to to his capital and have them beautify it and build new buildings and and just make it a better place. That's kind of ironic, though, when you consider that Timur himself spent very little time in his capital. No, he usually only stayed there for a few days at a time. He was truly a nomad. He personally led all of his campaigns, and he was constantly campaigning. He was in Samarkand for about two years at the end of the 1390s, but then invaded India in 1398, officially because the Sultan of Delhi wasn't persecuting the Hindus enough, but it kind of just seemed like an excuse to be able to go. ready to get out of the house. (laughs) Exactly. And he ended up destroying Delhi, and he killed 100,000 civilians. And according to most sources, this took more than a century for the city to recover from. So even after that bloody Indian campaign, he still had a couple empires left to polish off. One was the Mameluk Empire in Syria and Egypt. And he sacked Damascus in 1401, classic fear tactics kind of stuff went on there. And then the only place left standing was the Ottoman Empire in Turkey, which at the time was led by Sultan Bayezid I. And Bayezid, who was also known as the Thunderbolt, wasn't really a guy to be messed with. I mean, if anybody was going to go up against Tamerlane, it seemed like the Sultan would be the guy to do it. Definitely. He was also a proven general. He had defeated the Serbs at Kosovo in 1389 and then killed his own brother to solidify his position at the head of the empire. So 
absolutely seems like someone who could go toe-to-toe with Timor. And that Kosovo victory had also launched a European crusade against him, which Bayezid also put down. So like Timor, he had a very disciplined army, though many of them were Christian, drawn from conquered lands in Europe. The most famous part of this army of his, though, was probably his elite Janissary infantry. They were taken from their families at an early age and educated in war and in Islam, and their single mission in life would be to fight for their faith. They had a cavalry, too, and a more significant infantry, even than Timor had. So a lot to go up against. So it was clear that defeating Bayezid wasn't going to be simple, but Timor couldn't ignore him either. Bayezid had antagonized him by giving refuge to Timor's enemies and attacking areas that were under his control. He had to be put down, essentially, and negotiations had been going on between the two men for some time, but by this point, the situation had devolved into essentially an exchange of insults. Mm-hmm. War had to had to finally follow that. So Timur's forces invaded the Ottoman domain in the spring of 1402, and they felt pretty ready because they had already laid waste to all of the regions surrounding the empire. So they didn't have to worry about anybody immediately rushing in to the aid of Bayezid. And to add to that, Timur's army had also called up some fresh reserves from Samarkand. So they were really ready to go out and and fight the Janissaries and, and fight Bayezid's army. Yeah, they started out by trying to use that fear thing with the last Ottoman delegation that had come to negotiate with them. They kind of showed off their reserves, you know, showed off their elephants and everything that they had with them. And and it kind of worked. Bayezid's army, they were probably pretty impressed by this. But Bayezid at the time had his forces concentrated in Ankara, which was the city that commanded the approaches to Constantinople and the Ottoman capital of Brusa. So at this point, he's really at a crossroads. He has a decision to make. Do I stay here or do I go out and meet Timur's army head on? And he decides to march eastward toward Timur, acting on the information that Timur's forces are marching northwest to Tukat. So he thinks he knows where he's going and he thinks he has the advantage over Timur at this point. But that's not Timur's plan after all. Maybe it was because that proposed approach was too mountainous, maybe because Timur knew that Bayezid expected him to go northwest. Timur instead moved southwest and made this loop north and then further west again, all the way back around to Ankara, where he laid siege to the city. And Timur actually suits up for this. He's 66 years old, but he's not about to miss any campaign after this long military career. Yeah, Bayezid had figured out the location of Timur's forces through a couple of skirmishes and rushes back to Ankara. And here's where Bayezid misses a really key opportunity. Instead of catching Timur off guard and attacking immediately, he chooses to give battle the following day to give his forces a chance to rest. Seems to make sense, right? But this takes away the surprise advantage and also gives them plenty of time to dehydrate in the heat of July because... Timur has actually diverted the only available water supply. He's been really busy. He has. While waiting for Bayezid's army, Timur's forces had built a diversion dam upstream on Kubuk Creek with a breach in it that would let the creek continue flowing downstream until they decided to close it. So see so if you can picture like this. It would look like it was flowing. Yeah, exactly. 
Then they made a reservoir on a western tributary downstream, and a canal was dug from the diversion dam to the reservoir to funnel off the stream's remaining water when the dam was sealed off. And this was made possible. I mean, it, it may seem just completely unbelievable, but it was possible because of the thousands of men that were available and by Timur's trained elephants, which were trophies of his victory in India that he'd brought along with him. So when Bayezid arrived, he saw the Kabuk Creek flowing, but downstream it was actually dry, and there was no other source of water available to the Ottoman army. Thousands of soldiers and horses were involved here, so you definitely needed water to keep going. Exactly. So this day of resting up turns out to be a day of trying out in the July heat and, and giving Timur the advantage, too, knowing that you're there. The actual battle finally took place on July 28, 1402. And according to an article by Simon Craig in Military History, one of our favorite sources for battle information, there were between 200,000 and 400,000 troops on the field altogether. And the numerical advantage probably was with Timur. So Timur organized his forces into eight different detachments, and he himself controlled the center detachment. One of his sons commanded the left wing, and another son commanded the right wing. And that really fresh reserve from back home was placed at the rear between the main body of the army and the still defiant city of Ankara. So try to imagine all of that set up and then imagine those elephants fresh from (laughs) all of these um, canal projects, apparently. Um, They are wearing armor of painted leather and the men on top of the elephants, who who are all in front, by the way, had flamethrowers and the elephants themselves had these curved blades attached to their tusks and were trained to actually advance with a plunging motion to just create as much havoc as possible, as if an elephant charging toward you wasn't scary enough. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's assumed that these were mostly there for intimidation. They were mostly there for show. But, I mean... A bladed elephant. It sounds really really scary. Yeah, they could really do some damage. So the Ottoman force set up across for them on some low hills near Mount Mira. And Bayezid commanded the center with the army of Romelia supported by Tatars to his left and that of Anatolia backed up by Serbs to his right. And the first first clash was between the Ottoman left and Timur's right. The Ottomans were repulsed at this point, um, so Timur's side was winning on that end. But then Timur launched his left wing against the Serbs on the Ottoman right, and that didn't go so well for Timur. His forces were driven back at first, and it really seemed like the Ottoman forces had the advantage at that point. But then there was a twist. Bayezid's Tatar forces on the left turned against him and joined up with Timur. And most people think that Timur's agents had been there for a little bit. Another another problem about waiting for a day. Timur's agents had had time to sneak in, start talking to people, and and turn some turn some opinions. Regardless, though, this allowed Timur to focus on Bayezid's center as Bayezid's left just completely crumbled. So some of the soldiers on Bayezid's right ended up switching teams as well. And by that point, it was pretty much decided with so much betrayal on the Ottoman forces side. Um, it was clearly Timur's battle. Yeah. And just a note about the role of betrayal here, because obviously it played a really big role. In his article, Craig says that the root of this treachery was probably low morale among Bayezid's troops. As cold hearted as Timur seemed, in fact, he placed a big importance on the morale of his troops. So, for example, 
if they need a little boost in morale. He would bring in some astrologers who would predict a victorious outcome. A lot of heads in their future. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, come to think of it, that's what happened, right? So, I mean, it seemed to work for them. But Bayezid's troops weren't so lucky. Bayezid tried to hold his ground for a while, but he eventually tried to flee and was captured himself. He was transported to Samarkand after that and imprisoned, where he died a year later, some say from despair, although I'm not sure how much I really buy into Probably that. being Timur's prisoner. I mean... I imagine that would be difficult. It's kind of amazing that he was even kept as a prisoner in the first place. Yeah, I don't know what the reasoning behind that was. You would think that someone as ruthless as Timur would just sort of have him killed off right away, but not so. And Tamerlane, at this point, now approaching 70, he's not taking a break, even though he's finally defeated his biggest foe at the time. He is, at that point, 70 years old, planning his next campaign in China. But he died en route to China February 18th, 1405. Luckily for... The people where he was headed. So after Timur's death, his empire pretty much became engulfed in civil war and disintegrated. Timur himself never really bothered with administration. So there was no social, economic or political cohesion, just this fear of Timur, apparently. And as Craig puts it, the battle was sort of the end in itself for Timur. And he's, quote, perhaps best understood as a sort of career criminal, a gangster on the grand scale. And yeah, it makes sense that without that compelling figure behind it all, the empire is not going to last. But even though his empire didn't last, Timur himself is still revered and was after that. He was buried in a sarcophagus covered by a huge slab of jade in a mausoleum known as Guri Amir. I think that's the closest I can get to a good pronunciation of that, if anyone has any better corrections, please let me know. Or if you visited. If you visited, because apparently it's still called one of the greatest treasures of Islamic architecture. And that mausoleum is still shrouded in mystery. Legend has it that the disturber of his tomb would be cursed. And no one really tempted fate there. No one really tried to disturb his tomb for more than 500 years. Until in June 1941, the Soviet Archaeological Commission opened the tomb and examined the skeleton within. And the remains included hairs, including a few bristles of chestnut mustache and fragments of skin and muscle tissue. And the measurements of the skeleton revealed that at around 170 centimeters, Timur was actually tall for the time and very powerful. And the injuries on his right side were confirmed then. He was, in fact, lame because his right leg was shorter than his left and his whole frame was kind of twisted. And one scientist involved actually used the skull to make a facial reconstruction so we can see what his features look like. But now. what about the curse? What about the curse? That's a good question. Well, some say it came true. It was Soviet scientists involved, and days after the tomb was opened, Hitler attacked Soviet Russia. Yikes. Yeah, that's a pretty serious curse. That is a pretty serious curse, but he was a pretty scary guy, Timur was. So I think that it's only appropriate now that we move on to a little less serious of a listener mail. This letter comes to us from Ariel in Washington, D.C., and she says, Hi, Sarah and Dublina. I just listened to your podcast on Ned Kelly the other day, and I wanted to let you know about something funny that happened to me. I was waiting in line at a baseball game to get a snack when I noticed that there were two Australian guys in front of me in line. They ordered the biggest bucket of french fries on the menu, and one of them remarked to the other that the bucket was as big as Ned Kelly's helmet. I knew what they were talking about. Had I not heard your podcast, I would have been confused by the conversation I eavesdropped on. Thanks for the awesome podcast and keep them coming. 
So understanding obscure Australian units of measure, a, a surprising bonus to listening to Stuff You Missed in History Class. Yeah, so helping eavesdroppers everywhere. If we can help you with a particular topic that you want to know more about, you can write us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com, or you can look us up on Twitter at Missed in History or on Facebook. And if you want to learn a little bit more about Tamerlane's supposed relative, Genghis Khan, we do have an article on that famous warrior. It's called, Did Genghis Khan Kill 1.7 Million People in an Hour? You can find it by searching for Genghis Khan on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.